Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight's presentation is a difficult one. It's very, it will take you very, very far and very deep in understanding. But it, it is impossible to understand some of the elements of space-time and the relationship between consciousness and matter, especially in the traditional way. It's very difficult to understand those as a theoretical thing. It's uh, imperiously necessary that your intuition, that your higher chakras can take you there a little bit. That's why I ask that as many of you as possible should uh, help themselves today, if possible by fasting, and also if possible by working on Vishuddha Chakra and Ajna Chakra, because my way of explaining some of the things of tonight will be by starting from things of physics and natural science, and then going into things of metaphysics and going much bigger. And this leap is not possible without a higher level of consciousness. That's why this lecture, which has not been held in Agama for the last probably five years or so, or more, not because um, it has any flaw, on the contrary, uh, but simply because it was not required, it was not accessed by the people. This lecture, which used to be uh, one of the great hits in the old days, um, it was not done much, so most of you haven't seen it, haven't heard it, haven't been there with it. And uh, it's not really a lecture. This is more like a little workshop. It's like going somewhere deep. It is experimental. And um, because of this, it requires that you go into a certain state of consciousness. To favor it, not only that I said that you should work on Vishuddha Ajna and maybe even fasting for some of you who went that extra length, but also we are going to prepare for it through a little meditation on Ajna Chakra, in which I will trigger, I will amplify this field of understanding generated by the opening of the third eye. Um, this has the advantage that you will see some things crystal clear. It has the disadvantage that tomorrow you will not remember some of these things, and it will sound like it has been a dream, or it has happened in a dream, and... Uh, some of the steps of the way your mind has gone will not be entirely clear. So it's an experience which is done at a certain cost of energy. And uh, therefore, I'm going to make a very brief introduction. I'm going to do an Ajna Chakra about seven minutes meditation. When I feel the energy has reached the right intensity, I will ask you to, I'll stop the meditation, and I'll ask you to stay with the eyes closed or half closed, exception made when I'll start making some diagrams on the board, and uh, which of course you can open your eyes and watch, and try to stay into a state which is as meditative as possible. Imagine like you have been put in a slight state of trance, and try to keep that 
trance, not doing sudden movements of the body, not, uh, you know, like trying to be like there's a dream going on and you are part of that. Slowly, I will push the limits of your understanding. Um, even those of you who have a scientific background, you will uh, have some surprises following to some of these levels because this is not science, it's the application of the Tantric Yoga into science, but it starts from the data of geometry, of science as we know it. And um, there will be a leap at some point, there will be a leap in understanding, and that uh, will open some very big doors of your understanding. And um, in the end of this, when we'll have the necessary concepts and the necessary leap in consciousness and the necessary language, like we'll speak the same language about these things, then I'm going to read to you a brief material written from that state of consciousness, written at that level of consciousness, and which um, will make you understand the basic idea. Basic idea starts from the fact that modern science has evolved so much that either when we go at the level of the macrocosm with theories such as those of relativity, such as the theories of strings and parallel universes and the holographic universe theory and others, or when we go at the level of the microcosm with the quantum mechanics and the subatomic particles and all the things which result from that, modern science, sometimes not being even able to devise experiments to demonstrate fully these things, some of these experiments being what Albert Einstein called Gedanken experiment, mind experiments, like you can figure them out in the mind, but there are no electronic devices or apparatuses which can actually fulfill those experiments. Humanity has not gone as far as that. So, as I say, modern science, even a hundred years ago and more and more in the 20th century, it has gone to a point where it has discovered abnormalities in the linear mechanic model of the universe. If the universe already in the 16th, 17th century with Isaac Newton and the others uh, seems to become a very mechanical, easy to understand universe with laws of engineering, mechanics, electricity, optics and everything, chemistry and so on, uh, nevertheless modern physics and modern science has pushed the limits of these things and has reached to a place of uncertainty. No, like the famous quotes from science which say that if you say about an electron that it's one, one place you are right and if you say about an electron that it's not in that place you are again right. If you say one thing it's right and if you say the opposite it's also right. And um, I'm not going to dwell too much on this science aspect. There will be some point where you will use the geometrical and mathematical concepts of dimensions but until, and in an easy way, so you can follow, or at least that your intuition can follow. But what I'm trying to say here is that 
modern science has demonstrated that the universe is strangely alive, odd, uncertain. The same experiment about sub-element and elementary and sub-elementary particles done with the participation of a witness of a man who watches it goes in one way and the same experiment without the participation of that man who watches it goes in another way. And all these things, some of them are taken into account and they have turned into atomic bombs and a lot of other theorems and theories. And some of these discoveries which were done already tens of years ago, they are not yet even taken to their conclusion. They are very, very disturbing facts in science, which uh, science doesn't even find a way to take them further. But mysteriously enough, they are fitting very well with the understanding of space, time, macrocosm, microcosm, all the metaphysical theories about the five elements, like in Chinese philosophy, in the Taoist philosophy, and Far Eastern medicine, and so on. Or the statements of Rumi in the 12th century about the structure of the atom and the structure of the solar systems and galaxies, when most people didn't even fathom that the Earth was a sphere and round. And more and more, like going into these directions, we know that in the old days, there has been a lot of intuitive development, like people that had gigantic Ajna chakras, to say the least, because they could have had also gigantic Vishuddha chakras, and other chakras, especially the higher ones, superbly developed. These people, they intuitively, without knowing mathematics and integral calculus and things like this, like they did not have the formalism to express it in digits and symbols, but somehow conceptually they could express it. They understood space, time, and other forces of the universe. And for us, what is very important in Tantra is to see how all these disparate factors, space, time, which are differentiated reality, how they relate to consciousness, how they relate to oneness, how they relate to me and you in our yoga practice. How do they relate to the evolution of the human being? And uh, we are going to follow, there are 10 pathways in Tantra, dividing the universal energy in 10, the famous 10 cosmic powers. And each one of these 10 cosmic powers is like a spoke of a wheel. You start from the edge of the wheel, and by following it, you get to the center of the wheel. Each one of these 10 forces of the universe is like a window, like a door, like a pathway, which leads us to the central hub, to the essence of the universe. We can understand the cosmic consciousness through 10 different aspects of energy. Like, for example, four of the cosmic powers, they refer to the force, which the Greeks, the ancient Greeks have called logos, like in the Bible, the word, the speech, and which in India was called vak or vach, again, the speech, the divine speech. And there are four of those famous cosmic powers, which are about, which are teaching how to access consciousness, through the understanding of the phenomenon called speech, human speech and divine speech. So important this factor is called. So there are such ways, but two of these cosmic powers, two of other two cosmic powers, they refer 
to the factors which define this universe a lot, and they are very visible in a way, which we call space and time. And the tantric tradition has also devised an understanding of the universe. How, does, how do space and time actually, if we meditate on them, how is this universe made of space? Like how much space is in this universe? Mathematics tells us that we live in a three-dimensional universe where there is length and breadth and width. And we live in a universe where apparently there is some time flowing. So how do understanding space and time and understanding the warp of the universe, this word is very important. Like what is the universe made of? There is a warp of the universe. There is the basic structure of the universe. This, this word warp is so important that it even gives the name of Tantra. Tantra, the main meaning of the word Tantra is warp, like the warp on a loom, the, a web, that the whole universe is webbed. It is made in a very special communication way. And therefore, if you analyze the space, space goes all the way to God. It is a production of the cosmic consciousness. And time goes directly all the way to the cosmic consciousness. These cosmic powers, they are like the spokes of a wheel, and they all of them emerge from the Shiva consciousness, from the absolute consciousness. So how do we do then to look at the world as space and time and go back? Especially these two forces, because we could analyze the cosmic powers which uh, are talking about the universe from the standpoint of speech, logos, or others, icha, jnana, and kriya, the three basic energies of consciousness, the first three energies appearing in the Shiva Shakti element, illustrated by this trident up here on this yantra, for those of you who did the Kashmiri Shaivism workshop. So, how do we go? Like, we could follow Ichagyana Kriya, we could follow the Paravak, the Pashanti Vak, and the, the Madhyama Vak, and the Vaikari Vak, the four stages of the Vak. Today, tonight, we just choose out of these ten doorways, of these ten pathways, those two which relate very much with modern science, because there is not enough research in modern science which comes equivalent to Icha, Jnana and Kriya. There is not much research in modern science which comes close to the four levels of the Logos. It's not that it's impossible, but the modern science had not focused on those. But in modern science definitely there has been a study of space and time. And that's why by hybridizing, by seeing what has modern mathematics and science understood about space and time, and how does that mix with the chakras and with the intuition of the ancient meditators, people who meditated, 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 and they had the essential vision of space and time as proceeding from oneness. How does space relate to oneness? How does time relate to oneness? And again, what relevance does that have for us? Does it have a relevance for us? Like, does it relate in any way with our yoga, with our meditation, or is it just some philosophical talk? As you are going to see tonight, this is not just some philosophical talk. This goes very far, and it actually relates in a practical way, but some of these things have to be taken at a high level of resolution to be able to see what is hiding there, 
Many of them are Raja Yoga meditations, depending on the opening of the third eye. And that's why this is the experiment of tonight. So follow it carefully. And we are going to make a trip in the space-time and oneness, understanding everything else, because once you get in the middle of the hub, everything else is clear. It's like you reach on the top of a mountain and 360 degrees all around, everything is clear once you have reached the essential aspect. So we are going to do this experiment after a short meditation on Ajna Chakra. So assume a comfortable sitting position, about six, seven, five, eight minutes going in Ajna Chakra. Then I will stop the music and start talking about space and time. I will even do, draw quite a few diagrams. That's why I brought this board here, so you can follow. And try as much as possible to stay in a meditative state, to go deeper, and then you will see where this experiment will take you in, the, in this perception. Now, this being said, let us together meditate on Ajna Chakra.
and that will do. Please remain in this condition. Often keep your eyes closed and focus in the third eye. And of course, whenever you need to see some of the things which I represent, open your eyes, look, but try to stay as calm as possible so as to preserve this concentration and this energy in Ajna Chakra. Being informed about this research, this investigation in the nature of space and time, let us start by looking at some elementary things from geometry, trying to understand space and time as seen scientifically, first of all, because the scientific view is very intelligent, profound. It is the result of hundreds and even thousands of years of investigation. It is rational and uh, it contains already the germs of what we are trying to show here. And we start our exploration in the dimensions with the first three dimensions of space. As we said, according to regular school teachings, we live in a three-dimensional universe, and that is uh, rather is relatively easy to demonstrate. And when we look at the way those dimensions are presented in regular geometry, we see something like this. The first dimension or the first geometrical element is a dot. The first thing, everything starts with a dot. And that's interesting because Indian metaphysics would say exactly that. And this dot, a dot which has zero height, zero length, and zero breadth, it's completely zero, it's no, not long, not wide, not broad. Uh, this dot is the beginning of everything. It generates the whole universe. Of course, the dot which I represented here is a monstrosity. It's something big and just symbolic because a dot is not only smaller than that. Even an atom is gigantic compared to a mathematical dot because a mathematical dot is infinitely small. It's zero. That's why in practice, a dot doesn't even exist. There does not exist something materially which can be the equivalent of a dot. An atom could be, an electron could be, but even they are too big compared to a mathematical dot because a mathematical dot is an abstraction. It's just a singularity. It's just everything taken down to zero. This mathematical dot in India is called Bindu, and Bindu is the symbol of Shiva, and it is also the symbol of the male sperm, because the sperm cells are small like the Bindu, and of course they are gigantic compared to a mathematical Bindu. And this Bindu, we start with the lowest, with the first, but the first is the last, and the last is the first. The thing which is the most simple and with which we start everything is actually beyond the dimensions of space and time. It doesn't even exist in the dimensions of space and time because it is transcendental. We can think about it as a principle. Everybody can figure out that there is a principally, we can speak about a dot, uh, a bindu, but it doesn't exist in this world. 
which means it's in the world of the principle, it's in the world of Purusha. That's why Bindu, with which we start, is who creates all the dimensions of the universe. This Bindu is actually immaterial, transcendental, it is spirit, it is not of this world, and this is exactly the divine consciousness that creates the universe. This is exactly the Shiva consciousness that creates the universe. Everything is the result of this Bindu. In, Viva, in uh, Vedanta, they even have developed this into a separate theory, which is not relative to space and time, but more general, which they call Vivarta, that everything is the creation of just one Bindu in motion. Those of you who remember the old televisions, the cathodic tube televisions, the image, even when you had advanced color televisions, the image was produced by a bindu. There was a dot, and this dot was the result of a fascicle of electrons encountering the glass wall of the tube, and that shining dot was moving with an incredible speed on lines, so it moved on 576 lines in the PAL system in a 25th of a second. So it just is just doing the screen of a TV many, many times over, and every time when it reached a specialty, it was becoming yellow, green, white, black, yellow again, and so on, and describing a spectrum, and this generated an image, which our eyes, being incapable to perceive the bindu, they perceived like a television image, sometimes very clear, very beautiful. So even complex color images, and even when you use 3D glasses and you have 3D things, they are just produced by a bindu. Exactly in the same way the law of Vivarta says this whole universe, what you are seeing now, me and you and everything, is just a dot. It's just one single dot which moves with an infinite speed and it keeps drawing hundreds of times per second and more the whole universe. You know? And we see the universe, but this whole universe is just one bindu. And that bindu is here in Sahasrara and that's the divine consciousness. So everything is eventually resolved to the bindu. Thus the bindu is the alpha and the omega. This oneness is the beginning of our travel and it's the end of our travel as well. All the space and time is eventually resolved in this oneness. So this bindu is a spiritual symbol. And then science starts describing the first dimension, things which are one-dimensional. One dimension, let's call it length, and that means that a dot, if you have a dot, and that dot moves from a point to another point, let's say from point A to point B. That a point in motion, which means that that point, if you'd have a stroboscopic life, that point will be here and here and here and here and here and here. All over, it's moving like this. And if you would quantify time, it would move like this. That, that point describes a line, a line, a length, just like a thread. Of course, this thread is still infinitely thin, like it has no breadth and no width, just, it has just one dimension, which is length. You can say from A to B, there is a certain length. This is the one-dimensional existence, which means a line, simply a line. And we can start already a little experiment, which we will continue to say, to see something which will give us a hint when it go to the higher dimensions. If this line, which is a point under motion, if this line is sectioned, if we'll have a device of cutting it, 
like creating a section to it. So we come here and we just cut through this line in this point here. We just cut through it. At the point where you cut, in the moment when you cut it, if this is the line and I cut it in the middle, when I look into it, what do I see? When do I cut it? I see the point. So when I cut a line, a section in a line is a dot. A section in a line is a dot. It's just the thickness of the line. At every point of this line, I can stop and find that dot which has created it. Now, moving from the first dimension to this first dimension is supposed to be related to Muladhara Chakra in yoga. It's the first apparition and that's why existence on Muladhara Chakra is described as linear as happens for many animals, especially inferior forms of life, in which not even the instinct of Svadhisthana manifests clearly. Like the very square, very primitive going of existence, it's almost impossible to encounter it because even simple animals have some instinct already acting in them. And that's why that's just, I'm just already connecting it for you with the chakras. Now, the next point is, now we take a line, which is A to B, this line, and we start moving this line across itself. And this line moves from A to B to A prime and B prime. And this becomes a sheet, a surface. This is a bi-dimensional universe. And this bi-dimensional universe is made by this line moving, 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 moving. If we'd have the way to catch it in every atomic length of it, it's just a line which brushes across and this creates the surface. The surface is created by a line. By the same logic of the experiment, if we cut this sheet across, what we discover is this eternal line. In the moment when we cross, cut a sheet of paper and look on the edge of it. The edge of it is just the line which has created it. So when I cut a one-dimensional reality, I find a zero-dimensionally dot. When I cut a b-dimensional reality, I find a one-dimensional reality. You got it, like every time when I section something, I find something which is one dimension below, one dimension lower, because that's the thing which created that reality. That logic will help us understand what is happening further. And of course, the simple logics of it is that if we, the next step of this, oh, I forgot to say this would be related to Svadhisthana Chakra, and actually many people, that's why they compare it with the water element. They say the water has no hills or valleys except temporary with waves, but otherwise water left alone stays flat, and this flat land is Svadhisthana. The second dimension, the second chakra, the second level of consciousness presents something flat. It also in consciousness, like there is not genius and stupid and there is no rich and poor. There is a sort of a flatness, a sort of uh, perfect uh, sameness at the level of the water element. Then we go further. This square, which was called A, B, A prime, B prime, when it moves perpendicular to itself in this way, it describes this time a cube or 
another parallelepipedic object like this, moving from here to here. Basically, this is this sheet moving across itself many, many times. Again, if we'd have a stroboscopic mental instrument, it would be like we'll catch snapshots of this as it moves like this, and as it moves like this, it fills up a volume. It has become a volume, a 3D object. Of course, in the moment when you cut this 3D object, if you cut it with a section, then in the middle you find exactly the sheet which has generated it. Wherever you cut it, if you cut a three-dimensional object, like a bread could have this shape, and when you cut it, there is a square, there is the slice of bread, the plane which has generated that volume. This third dimension is related to Manipura Chakra. Many yogis say that people on Manipura Chakra have very good 3D orientation and feeling. And the people who are not very good with 3D, they are rather Svadhisthanistic. So this, there are tests of showing what's happening when you turn an object in your mind and all that 3D vision and orientation. Some of the gurus with whom I spoke in my life, they were of the opinion that humanity has not even conquered properly the third dimension because they simply made the observation that while it's relatively easy for the human being to move left and right, back and forth, when it comes to the third dimension, we don't move so easily and so much. Humanity cannot go under seas more than 1.5 kilometer with a crude machine and with devices they can go maybe 10 kilometers down but in extremely difficult conditions. When it comes to digging holes in the earth, we haven't gone lower than 60 or 100 kilometers down the crust of the earth. We, we, don't, we cannot go 6,000 kilometers down even. When it comes in going up, it's extremely difficult. Even airplanes fly no more than 10 kilometers up, 10,000 meters, maybe 11, 12,000 meters. More than that, it becomes really difficult. You require high scientific machines, stratospheric airplanes, satellites, and other things. And generally, even satellites and other things don't go further up than 60 or 100 kilometers. 60 or 100 kilometers is nothing horizontally, but when it comes to go vertically. So many gurus say that the humanity has not even conquered fully Manipura Chakra or the third dimension, because the vertical part of our displacement in this cosmos is not, not at all sorted out. We are very clumsy, and if we want to go 100 kilometers up, we have to spend huge amounts of technology and energy and so on, and just one person can go and then quickly come back and all that kind of stuff. So that uh, the third dimension, this is the third dimension of space, the volume. Now, we move a little bit deeper. I'm, try I'm going to try to leave all these here so you see the path on which we go. If there will be need at some point, I'll start deleting a few things because I'll need to exemplify things. And thus we move to the famous fourth dimension. Traditionally in science, the fourth dimension is time. Like scientists don't have a clear visual image about time like it is with space. And that's why there are various theories and understanding. Normally, we human beings seem to consider time a linear dimension, like it goes from the past to the future via the present. Past, present, future, it's a line. Your life clock 
is ticking. You are born, you are growing up and become adult and one day you are going to die. There is no way back, there is nothing. Time is just a one-dimensional flow. It's a sequence and this sequence seems as far as we go to be irreversible and uh, there doesn't seem to be anything else. This is the famous fourth dimension. Please beware of the fact that people who are part of the New Age cultures of today liberally speak about four-dimensional being, fifth-dimensional beings, and something like this. Those poor creatures are deluded ignorance who have never had a 101 in physics, and that's why when they would speak such thing in front of a gathering of TED Talk people or high-level engineers or physicists, those people will start rolling on the floor with laughter because those people use words like fourth dimension, I got a message from the fifth dimension, and they don't even know what they're talking about. You know, they are not even in the ABC of science. It's enough to take a book, uh, popularized science, written in the 1950s, like one, two, three, infinity, by George Gamow. You no, know, just to give an example of an American popular physics book, which every one of you can find in second-hand bookshops for one dollar or something like this, like simple books to realize that to speak nonsense about fourth dimension as being a spiritual invisible thing and the fifth dimension and I don't know the mth dimension and so on, uh, these are nonsense from a scientific standpoint. In science, the fourth dimension is added to the three and it basically means like this. Now you don't have a dot moving, you don't have a line moving, you don't have a sheet moving, now you have a cube moving. So you are starting from a three-dimensional, consider it a division line here. You have a three-dimensional object. Let's take a cube because it's regular and simple to fathom. And this cube is moving somewhere on a general direction, symbolically. It's not moving anywhere. This movement means time and it moves from point A or from moment A to moment B. And this cube basically moves according to all its dimensions. Basically, this movement means that if you would have a stroboscopic lamp, at every moment of this movement, you would catch the cube, the whole cube. Like the whole cube is, that's why we can't represent it, because it's like the cube interpervades with the cube itself. Like at every moment, it's the same cube, a little bit further, a little bit closer to its destination. And again, the same cube and again the same cube, and every time when you move it, you just have the same cube moving, moving, the cube moving, moving, moving until it's here. And if by the same principle you exert a section, if you cut this sausage, if you cut this four-dimensional bread, lump of bread or whatever you want to call it, here in the cut you find not a slice, you find the cube. A four-dimensional object, when it is cut, it finds in the cut a three-dimensional object from two to one, from, I'm sorry, from one to zero, from two to one, from three to two, and from four to three. So this kind of object, a four-dimensional object, is something which you just imagine with your mind's eye. It doesn't exist in reality. I can very well say that what you see here is the four-dimensional existence of a cube. This is the moment zero in time. Let's not use a delusive color. So this is zero, and this is 10 seconds. There are 10 seconds between this. 
this cube is like somebody materialized the cube. Pop, it appeared here. It existed for 10 seconds. And then when 10 seconds were filled up, poof, it disappeared. This is the four-dimensional existence of a cube. This is a four-dimensional cube. A four-dimensional cube, as you are going to hear in the material which I prepared for you, even has a funny name. It's called the tesseract. In mathematics and in physics, it has a name. It's well known. So the four dimensions, the fourth dimension of the universe, is simply telling us it's speaking about four-dimensional objects. And we have to stop here a little bit because although it's clear to conceive that things exist in time, we're not fathering. This is called, in, in sometimes in science environments, the, the space-time continuum. It's a continuum because in here the same 3D things continues, interpervades with it. It is through it physically. Time is not a dimension which is that way or that way or that way. Time is a dimension which goes, flows into a direction which is invisible. It's an imaginary direction. And in that imaginary direction, there exists a continuum. This continuum, the space-time continuum as it's called in science, basically means that every object has an existence. Let's make something a bit more complicated than a cube. Let's say that a human being can be beamed up like in Star Trek by the beam me up Scotty type of method. And here is the moment zero and here is Scotty or whoever appearing beamed up and then this person will stay in that room or on that platform for 10 seconds until 10 seconds later when the person is dematerialized, poof. And in this time, this person, at every second, at every second, this 3D person, it exists here. I'm sorry for my poor skills in drawing, but you got the point. It's like you have a stroboscopic shot, like when you see a hand moving stroboscopically, and it's click, 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 and you see a hundred hands, and it's the same hand, but moving very quickly, and it's the same cube, and it's the same person. And if at any point in this you make a cross-selection, if you cut this thing, we'll, you'll see we give it a funny name, then you find there the 3D person at that particular moment in time. Because when you cross, it's like a snapshot. It's like a stop in time. It's a 3D object which moves in time. It doesn't need to move physically. It moves in time. This kind of continuum is what we jokingly here in Agama, we call a sausage. It's like a sausage. Not like this is made of flesh, and it's like a long fleshy thing, of course, of a very peculiar um, type. Let's make, let's extend this experiment. Let's make the sausage of a human being who is born in a standing vertical position at 50 centimeters length as a baby and stands in the same place until he dies 80 years later. So that would be the baby being born. And then as time passes, it grows and grows and grows. Somewhere by the age of 20 is a fully grown up human being. It lives by the age of 40. It starts decreasing in size and height. And by the time it becomes 80, it passes away. This at every moment you cut this sausage, 
you find that human being at that moment in their life. This is a space-time, four-dimensional sausage, which shows the life of a person. Now, of course, the life of a person is never that simple, because you'll never find a person to stand like this from the beginning to the end of their lives. So let's now make a sausage of a person who moves. Like, we have somebody being beamed up for 10 seconds, and this person, this person now moves in the middle at five seconds here. This person moves one step left. That's all. So that would be the person is here. I'm drawing another line here. So this person is here, starting and moving for five seconds. And approximately in the middle of it goes a little bit to the left, to its own left, and then continues existing. So here, at five seconds, the person has made a step to the left a fraction of a second later, and then it continues existing till the second number 10, where the person is so this sausage is a curved sausage because the person has moved. But of course, if a person does like this, then the sausage becomes very, very complicated and definitely impossible by my limited graphic abilities to draw on such a twisted. That's the sausage of everybody. All of you have taken airplanes, moved, done acro yoga, done, done whatever you have done. So your sausage is a complicated, complicated thing which comes from your childhood until today. This sausage is like an illustration of your personal history, at least in this body, in this universe, in this life, in this physical world. You have appeared at some point and then you have developed and of course physically you have moved up and down and left and right and back and forth and bend over and arched back and whatever you did. So that sausage is not, these are simple examples, but we can define the existence of one person exactly by this sausage-like model. This, this is the four-dimensional existence of a human being. So there is nothing mysterious about the fourth dimension, like, well, some of these new age-ish people who come and say, oh, I got some messages from the fourth dimension or something. The fourth dimension in physics is the fourth dimension, and that's the fourth dimension. There is not any mystical thing about it. Now, to be able to understand where the catch is, because this one goes on Anahata Chakra. Many yogis say that on Anahata Chakra there is the power of Kali, the power of time, because Anahata Chakra has two spokes, exactly like the clock has two 12 things. It's not a coincidence. And exactly as the horoscope has 12 astrological signs and the sun moves through those 12 astrological signs exactly like a cosmic clock. And therefore, the passing of time, this thing that time is passing from birth to death, and your life is going, is coordinated by the fourth dimension in Anahata Chakra. With Anahata Chakra, we start moving into another. It's not space, it's time. Of course, modern physics has shown that space and time can be defined only by relation to each other, and that's why space and time are related. They are connected. So, of course, it's not something completely different. That's why the chakras are not clearly defined, like up till Manipura is something and from Anahata is something else. It's still the chakra system, but as you get higher, things are getting more and more elevated, more and more spiritual. So, this is how we represent the fourth dimension. To understand how we go further, you have to understand a little thing 
which uh, is best, best understood through differential calculus in mathematics. I'm not going to take you in the depth of it. I'm just going to give you a concept which helps you understand. As things are moving like this, like we try to understand every movement of time, then people have said if, if matter is quantum, is quantic, like it's particles, why do we think that time is continuous? And both in mathematics as well as in the ancient tantric and Vedic tradition, the time is not continuous. The time is like a stroboscope, only it's like 10 at the minus 29th potency of a second, like it's, there exists a time which is defined the least time in quantum mechanics, is the time which it takes an elementary particle to go from one level of energy to another level of energy. This shift between two levels of energy of an electron or some other elementary particle is considered to be the unit of time. Like it's the fastest thing which happens in the known universe and we don't know anything which happens quicker than a quantum move movement, than a, a quantum shift. Even the quantum shift, if I remember correctly, it's somewhere at 10 at the minus 15th of a second and the Vedic tradition has a unit of time which is called kshana and the kshana is about 10 at the minus 29th or something like this of a second. Like it's, it's much, 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 much faster than a quantum leap. It's like infinitely fast. And this is the point that time is like a stroboscope. The theory about Kali, the theories about time in the Vedic tradition confirm this. That time, you cannot understand it as a continuum. There is nothing in nature which is continuum. Even matter is not continuum. It's made of atoms and between the atoms there are gaps. There are big gaps. So time is made of particles of time called kshana, of moments. Exactly like a cinema movie is made of images, 25 per second. And between those images there is a stroboscopic hiatus and, then the, and your eyes cannot see the difference. Beyond 25 per second, your eyes cannot see that the image is interrupted. The image is weighs like gazillions of times per second and there is no device which can measure that scientifically. Even if we would use quantum devices, they can measure up to 10 to the minus 15th potency. So there are another 15 zeros to go down the line. We are simply incapable to measure these kinds of things. Well, in differential mathematics, this is like we can choose an infinitely small interval of time, which is the equivalent of a kshana. We can choose an infinitely small interval of time during which nothing radical happens. Mathematics and physics say during which everything is linear. Like there is a linear evolution of the phenomena between this moment to this moment because it's very, 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 very short. In differential mathematics, such a moment between two different things, like I have the cube in moment one and in moment two, the difference between them is symbolically noted as dt, differential of time. And this is what appears in differential mathematics always. We make ratios between space and time like dx over dt, dy over dt, dz over dt and we multiply and we do all sorts of things with them and it's all based on the fact that let's analyze what's happening on a very 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 small short sample, on the shortest possible sample. This concept 
of dt or kshana, that there is a quantum of time, is very, very important for you to understand because from this comes the leap which you do tonight in understanding this phenomenon of space and time. We presume that the evolution of things in time, this kid growing or this person moving or whatever, is on a DT level, like it's like at the smallest possible pace, at the smallest possible interval. And as we analyze the evolution of this phenomenon of time, let's now take one of them. I'll have to sacrifice a few of them. So if I'm having the evolution of time, let's put an axis of time. Imagine that sausage, a somebody's sausage, a human being, a cube. It doesn't matter if it's in motion or not in motion. That this, the same thing happens. And there is something on that sausage. Let's draw it like a continuum like this, like a space-time continuum coming from here to here. And in this space-time continuum, we have this dt, this minimum unit of time that everything is quantified like this. Then the idea which comes with Vishuddha Chakra when we move further is what is then happening this way, like sideways, like time cannot be described as a line. Everything to exist in this universe must have at least three dimensions. It must be a body. So if time is a body, it means it has not only a length, it, ha it must have a width and the height of it. They are sideways. So basically, what is happening if I move this sausage with dt this way, sideways? And then I obtain a parallel sausage, which is very close to this one, as close as it can be, the closest which it can be, like there is only a quantum between them, it's the minimum direction, and there is a parallel sausage, which basically contains a transformation, like exactly as the human being here is empty in the lungs, and here is full in the lungs, so between these two moments it's like... So there is a difference in the size of the lungs, in the expansion of the chest, like this sausage cannot be constant, if it's a cube, then it's constant, but if it's a human being, it won't be constant. It will have at least, if the human being stays quietly like this, and it will still have inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, plus the heartbeats and other less visible phenomena. Then, when I go sideways, this other sausage, which is a sort of an alternate, another version of this sausage, it cannot be completely identical. It has to be slightly different. And it is with dt, it's an, it's an, in mathematics that's called infinitesimal, like infinitely small. It's an infinitesimal difference, but there is a difference. And then if I continue on this line with the sausage number three and four and all of them, each one of them has an infinitesimal difference 
from the previous one. And this infinitesimal difference may sometimes build up exactly like when as he was going like this. It's an infinitesimal difference, more than infinitesimal, more than infinitesimal, 50 centimeters to the left. The sausage has moved like this. So I can have here one version and I can have here another one. And these are versions of the same thing with a small difference. Like for example, if this is a human being, the human being in the next sausage, which is the same human being, we're talking about Walter, the next Walter is one atom's breadth. One atom's breadth, like imperceivable, one atom's breadth taller than this Walter. Not a big difference, you won't see. It's a very small thing, dt. But when you add a gazillion of dt's like this, we can get to a Walter, which is somewhere here, which is three meters tall. Like there is a universe, there is an alternative of the events where Walter is three meters tall. And there is one where Walter is 30 meters tall. And the world probably looks completely different because of that. Because there cannot be just one Walter in this way. And thus, what I'm trying to say is that as you start going sideways in time, and you start seeing these continuums of space-time, they are like the logs in a stack of logs. You know, like tubes, and tube near tube. The difference is that the logs cannot, like if you have logs like this sitting, you have a log here, and a log here, and a log here, and a log here. And, but the sausages of the space-time would be like interpervaded with each other. They would be encroaching onto each other. They would be not very distant, but of course some of them can be all the way here and then they are distant. So it's like an incredible stack which grows basically infinitely in this direction and infinitely in this. I'm looking from here, right, to see this. And this is where the, all the continuums are, seeing them like this. And there are versions of it. So in the moment when we start moving in the space-time in the fifth dimension, as we'd say, time becomes lateral. That's the big revolution. Because in that moment we start understanding that there exist versions of the same reality. Slightly different, but some of them which are far enough are way, way more different. There is a sausage in which Walter, somewhere, there is a, a far enough sausage here, 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 and then there is a sausage where Walter, at this moment, before the end of the story, dies, falls dead. There is a story where Walter, there is another sausage where Walter is smarter, and smarter, and smarter, and he's a genius, and he's a super genius. There is a version where Walter lives longer. There is a version where Walter is more beautiful. There is a version where Walter has a twisted leg as a result of a childhood accident. There is a version where Walter is a Buddha. There is a version where Walter is enlightened. Any alternative to the events is possible. Like, let's say I'm having here a scene where, let's say, a person is running for 10 seconds or just making one step forward, one step forward, two through three seconds. That's this. In the next one, this person does exactly the same motion, and his right leg is one breadth of an atom lower, closer to the floor. 
And if you continue on that line, the leg will be closer and closer and closer to the floor until when you get far enough, you find one in which the person stumbles and falls. And the sausage looks completely different there. So given that you go far enough, you can find any alternative of the reality. Any alternative of the reality. And in all the directions, which means if you take one of these directions, it's symbolic of something, but if you take another one, it's symbolic of something else. And by combining them, you can basically obtain a whole spectrum of everything. There is a universe in which the you are the same, but there is an ant crawling on the floor. But there are a thousand ants crawling on the floor. But there is a gigantic ant crawling on the floor. Now, any modification of any factor of reality is possible, and there is a small dt difference. Like in the beginning, the difference is insignificant, and the, the crossing from one sausage to the next is always dt. Like between two neighboring sausages, it's not a very big difference. Always the neighboring ones are like smooth from each other. But in the long run, the difference can become absolutely overwhelming. This means that there exists, basically, we can speak about any alternative, starting with Vishuddha Chakra, the fifth, and starting with Ajna Chakra, the sixth, so making the time three-dimensional, Everything is possible. In this way, we would say, just to make it simple, that there are three dimensions of space and three dimensions of time. The time is also a corpus. It's a body which has length and breadth and width, and it corresponds to Anahata, Vishuddha, and Ajna. Sahasrara is Bindu, is something else. Sahasrara is not even a chakra. The universe is made of six energies, of six levels of energy, plus Sahasrara, which is special. And therefore, in the moment when the consciousness goes to Vishuddha and Ajna, that's the reason for which I asked those of you who remembered to work on Vishuddha and Ajna, then automatically the consciousness, we, can, we start see this fact that time is not only a linear thing, that time is a volume. And then when we ask ourselves what's on the left, what's on the right, like different sausages, different alternatives of that life sausage. Of course, when we say sausage, you simplistically think about a human being doing something. Or you think about you, your sausage. But of course, the concept is general because it means you, your friends, your relatives, your country, the whole planet. Not only the planet, but every, like everything has a sausage. Every sausage is in a sausage. You know, it's part of a bigger sausage. So in this way, when I say sausage, I simply mean reality, existence, universe. It's a version of the universe. That's one version of the universe. But immediately next to it, there is a slightly different version of the universe. And in the beginning, it seems to make no point. Like, what's the use of a slightly different version of the universe? But when you go enough, far away, then you see that there is a very wildly different, wildly different version of the universe. For you, this may sound as abstraction till this point. But here is a little example which will bring you down to the earth and see that some people can be totally crazy. Like the 16th Karmapa, the predecessor of the present day Karmapa, was a very big yogi with undoubtable great yogic accomplishments. And this man who was a 
oversized, uh, an obese, jovial man, was in a meeting of devotees of Tibetan Buddhism, and then suddenly in the middle of that meeting where something was happening and people were a bit disorganized, he started laughing out of the blue. And people like, oh, the boss is laughing. It's like, you know, he was the center of attention for everybody. And he said, you know, people were wondering, I wonder why is he laughing? I missed a joke. And they asked him, Karmapa, sir, whatever they called him, Guruji, or something, why are you laughing? And his answer was absolutely devastating. He said, I was witnessing myself in 10,000 parallel existences. And in one of them, the Karmapa ridiculously fell on a banana peel, like in a slapstick comedy. And it amused me so much that I couldn't stop myself from laughing. Like this man claimed that he was sitting there in the middle of a gathering, and he could be aware of about 10,000 sausages, in which he existed simultaneously, and in one of them something really funny had happened. And it was hilarious, and not that Karmapa, but this Karmapa was laughing of that one who was in a funny situation. For some people this is damn real. For some, some people consider it an abstraction, but some people live it out. It's very difficult for the human beings to see it. Kashmirians say very clearly it is not just a universe. There are myriads of universes. When Shiva is dancing, we don't have a dancing one here, but when Shiva is dancing, he's flashing forth myriads of universes. For Kashmirian Shaivas, there is not just one universe. We are living in myriads of universes. All the sausages, each universe is like a sausage, it's a version of events. And then there are derivatives from it. So, of course, the big question is, then why don't I live in a universe where I am taller? I would love to be taller, physically. You know? And there is a universe in which you are taller. So why did I fix myself on this one? It's a matter of consciousness, right? It's a matter of the fact that I say, here I am. This is me. I'm not that one. I'm this one. So why do I fix myself on this sausage? How did my karma make me choose this alternative? If you think a little bit carefully, you are going to see that when you witness great miracles, for example, they cannot be explained except by a shift of sausage. For example, Jesus, they bring to him a man who is on a stretcher, and they said he had, been, had polio, since a child. So probably skeletic with a contraction to him tied up to a stretcher. And Jesus tells him, stand up, take your bed and go home. And the man stands up, take the bed and go home. That's not really part. People think that Jesus was a sort of Yoda where who did to that sick man and the man kind of got up and he was good, okay. But try to think, if somebody has been on a stretcher for 20 years, they don't have muscles. They cannot just stand up and walk. So that man suddenly had muscles. Out of the blue, like materialized. If somebody has been since childhood on a stretcher, they don't have a sense of balance. Takes you approximately one year to learn to walk properly. If first time in the life somebody says, now you've got the muscles, now you've got the health of your nerves, stand up and walk. How do you walk? Your brain doesn't have the pathways for walking. But suddenly this guy did. 
there are a lot of things which you cannot. So basically when Jesus told to that man stand up, he shifted the sausage. He moved on another reality with the whole world, with the whole universe around him, with the disciples and the onlookers. They all moved to another reality. He shifted exactly like you have a gramophone and the needle is in one thing and you move it. You just move it to another channel. No? He shifted it because it's not possible to explain a miracle like this just by giving some energy or some willpower or some love or some sympathy. That doesn't account for changing the person's brains with the ability to walk and with the muscles to do it and with a hundred other things which that man wouldn't have been able to do. And we, I can continue this analogy with other and other miracles which are utterly impossible if you look at them from a rationalistic standpoint. And yet, there they are. We speak a lot about this. There is, in the stories of the 84 Mahasiddhas, the founders of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, in the blue annals, there is a nice translation made by Keith Dauman, a Western author, of the lives of them. And the first of them, if I remember, I even forgot his name, what Mahasiddha that is. He's famous for this. He went to some Nepalese kingdom. It was in the early 7th century or something, in the early dawn of Buddhism in, towards Nepal and Tibet. And the local king or the local chieftain or something behaved badly said, yeah, yeah, there's another beggar, yogi, asshole who comes by and so on. And people on the contrary, they were taking teaching and they, feel of, they felt offended. And then this Mahasiddha did a crazy thing, very rare in history. He took his purba, this Tibetan dagger, multi-edged dagger, and he simply plunged it in the ground like this. And he said, now, because you have insulted me, the sun will not set. And the sun got stuck somewhere. And in India and in those parts of the world and here as well, if the sun is not setting for three days, you're dead. All the, dry, all the rivers are drying up and you start boiling. Like only the night brings some relief to the scorching power of the sun. So after three days, this king came begging on his knees and he said, please, please stop this because the animals are dying. We are dying. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't know who you were. Please take this from us. And the guy pulled the dagger and the sun started moving and it finally set. We all know that this must be some alternative universe because the sun cannot stop because the sun stopping would mean that the earth would stop rotating. And if the earth would stop rotating, it would go red hot in a second because of the friction, because of the kinetic energy. And all the rivers and all the lakes and the oceans would flow over the land. It would be the biggest, most major geological catastrophe in the history of the earth if the earth would be stopped mechanically by something. So we know for sure that the earth couldn't have stopped from spinning around its axis. And if the earth would have stopped for three days, some Chinese scholar would have said, we don't know why, but we in Beijing, we've seen that the sun is not coming anymore. So it must be some crazy Baba from Nepal who did this thing. But nobody writes about it. And yet the people in that kingdom, they witnessed it. So it means that those people were into a sort of a gigantic hypnosis, into a virtual reality of some sort. They saw that the sun was not setting, but nobody else on the earth did. Only in that area. 
they did see this. This is what I'm talking. This is not just miracles that you put some energy there or you give some energy to a bush and it's growing faster or some weird thing like that. We are talking about another reality, about creating other sausages, shifting the reality completely. This is basically the mystery. And this mystery takes us to one of the biggest statements of Vedanta with this Vivarta, that everything is created by this Bindu. If I go laterally on this, I, let's say, am developing and 5 centimeters further or 50 centimeters further or whatever, you cannot measure it in centimeters because it's time, but I'm saying it so intu intuitively can understand. So in a sausage far enough, my nose is longer. And if you go further, my nose is really long. It becomes like a Pinocchio type of nose. And if you go further and further, I might get a dog's head. I don't have an, the nose of a dog. And if you go further and further, I am a dog. Exactly like in computer effects in modern movies, when you see a man turning into a wolf. No, it's a morphism. You know, each and every fraction of a second, each and every sausage, I'm different. So I can be one thing in this universe and a wolf in another universe. And then, if I come from that universe, if I take that universe as the center, okay, here is the reality where Swami is a wolf. And if I come from that universe on another line, I follow, I find a skillful line. These lines in time, they even have a name in science. They are called creodes, from creo, creo, the chronos from the time, and Creodes like the geodes in geology and in geodesy. In making map, geodes are those curves on the map which show a constant height. Creodes are curves in the space-time continue, like the space-time continue is a mountain and you are drawing geodetic lines on it. So they are creodes. So if I find a creode, I can come up through whatever version, wherever it's going, and in this universe, I am Kari. So I can be a wolf, and a wolf can be Kari. But that means that I am Kari. Which basically says, I'm everything. I'm everybody. That's what Kashmiri Shaivism says, that there is only one being. And that being is called Shiva. And you are Shiva, I am Shiva, she is Shiva, everybody is Shiva. Because in this creodic universe, there is a continuity between everything and everybody in every single version, in every single sausage. And therefore, we truly are all one. In the moment when we start expanding these timelines, both in the future, like what about the next life? What about the previous life? What about 5,000 lifetimes as 5,000 sausages on a line? And all the alternatives of all of them in all the possible ways, it's a huge image of complexity, which basically shows that we can live any alternative. Like in the moment when you get enlightened, what's happening is that you jump on a sausage where you are enlightened. That's why the change is radical. And Buddha perceived his enlightenment like pom. And then, when you are enlightened, what if I go on a creod and I'm somewhere back in time? But hey, back in time I was not enlightened, but I am the same. So basically a being who becomes enlightened can say, 
I have existed since the beginning of time. There is a law of logics which says everything which is a, has a beginning will have an end. If your life has a beginning, it has an end. But if you reached enlightenment next year on the 17th of April, will it have an end? Because enlightenment is supposed to have no end. So how can it have a beginning? Why do we say that Buddha got enlightened on the 20th of May? This is how it was, Vesak, right? The full moon. The last full moon is supposed to be the birthday and the enlightenment day of Buddha Gautama in the astrological sign of the Taurus. It happened according to history. So Buddha was a Taurus, historically, apparently, as far as if the knowledge is authentic, that's what we get to hear. And therefore, it's like if Buddha got enlightened on the full moon of Taurus, when will it end? It never ends. But if it never ends, as he says, then it cannot have a beginning. Because if it's limited one place, then it cannot be infinite. It has a limitation. And therefore it means that it turns back in time. In the fifth and sixth dimension of time, time is not linear. You can just get to other alternatives and then time is, you know, it doesn't matter if it goes this way or this way or that way. Time can be beaten. There is a version of this universe in which you are younger. And you can keep on jumping on a younger one. And then you are like the Babaji of Yogananda, who is supposed to be 2,000 years old and never get old. Because then what meaning has the flow of time? You are controlling all the six dimensions of the universe, which means also the three dimensions of time and any alternative. This is the crazy vision that when the tantrics meditated, they said three of time, three of space and three of time, six chakras. And if you have them all, then everything is intermerged with everything and everything is connected with everything through this space and time things. And because of this, eventually we reach to oneness. Because if I am the wolf and the wolf is I don't know who, and then I am that person, then I am you and you are I, and we are both Shiva, and there basically there is only one person right now. There are lots of egos right now in the hall, but when it comes to I-ness, the I is only one. Because that I is given by God and is called consciousness, and that I is the aham from Kashmiri Shaivism, is the I am, is the I am of Shiva. That I-ness, mine is same with yours. The mind is not, the brain, the body is not, but the I-ness is the same. Everybody just feels I am, surely I am. Yeah, it definitely must be. Some people tell me it's an illusion. That feeling, that thing is one and the same. And that's called consciousness reflexive consciousness and awareness and mindfulness and all the other alternative names and that's what we're talking about that that Atman is one there are not a hundred Atmans in this hall Atman is Brahman there is just one consciousness one reality so in this way the tantrics meditating on space and time called Bhuvaneshwari and Kali in the tantric tradition they basically have said that if you Realize, all of them speak about a warp, a web called Tantra, and this warp 
is just one. It's just an expression of oneness. And in this way, through space and time, you can reach to the divine. Now that we have a common language with these sausages and with this thing, let me read you, get back into the meditation mode, let me read you a material written about this so you understand because it's better if I use words which I have chosen carefully in saying some of these things. It's about four pages and a half and uh, it's at a high level. The first forms of existence emerging from the great explosion of atoms and the shock of billions of particles flung once against each other in the beginning of this day of Brahma, that's how the Hindus call the cycles of creation, were the so-called old stars. I don't know if you studied a bit of astronomy, but the stars are old stars and young stars. There is a first generation of stars, much older than the, for example, our sun is a young star, is not an old star. From the original cosmic being, they derived awareness because the stars are considered to be devas, they are considered to be deities, so they are beings, and became cores of consciousness and conscience, throwing light and warmth on the icy emptiness of space. This localized consciousness, which is in the stars, is born, lives, and dies with the stars, like the stars are its physical body, making that they are not eternal, although their lifetimes are greater than even the entire span of human evolution and history. The greatness and loneliness of these old stars is of an extent which cannot be understood by the common intellect nor conceived. Therefore, neither can one easily understand their determination to web with each other with bonds other than light and gravitation. Because they interact gravitationally and through light and electromagnetic. But more, more, more. It is like a great plan called by some here on the earth in Hindu religious environments by the name Dharma, formulated from the beginning of time, which decrees that all the forms of life, all the sentient beings, men, people, humans included, are like the blood of the stars, with their intelligence and conscience unceasingly pushing back chaos and the cold of darkness. They are the eyes and the ears, the voice and the hands of the suns, of the stars. Throughout galaxies and other universes, they expand this web of awareness, continuing to carry the torch of a glorious stellar existence. This is a great dignity, like we are the stars, we are the extension of the stars, the atoms of the stars. This is a great dignity because we are part of a bigger plan. These ancient gods work together with us to achieve the great goal that practically has no beginning and no end. The only beginning and end are the beginning of the universe and the end of the universe. Such understanding of Dharma makes intelligent sentient beings capable to deal with existence and with the universe. Like, who are we? We are the pawns of the stars. We have a function in this universe. Obviously, we are not yet the stars. We can become through evolution. That's a different story. But right now, where are we? What are we? How big and relevant are we in the big picture of the universe? 
of course, that these gods are in their turn related to a higher order of existence, to the one. Each one is a facet of one, of God, from which everything proceeds, in a manner which shall be explicated below. Like I'm going to get there. Their existence is spiritual and not only related to the stars as physical objects. When the consciousness is there, it exists with a body and without a body. Their day, these sort of levels of existence, which are between us and the oneness and the divine, they have more powers than any deities we can imagine. We may say the gods are all-powerful, but all-powerful is just a word, an empty word, until we ourselves reach that existential condition. We can only endow them with the powers that we are capable of imagining and defining, and therefore with only with the powers that we are capable of acquiring. Because if we can think of it, we can get it. It exists. So therefore, there are things which we don't even conceive of how they are possible in this plasticity of space and time. People hardly make any distinction between what is infinite and what is boundless. The gods are not immortal if we mean that their lives are infinite. Nothing is infinite in that sense, not even the visible or conceivable universe. Like how much is the visible universe? As much as you can conceive meta-galaxies and clusters of the universe, we still go up till a point. The visible universe, how far can the human telescope see? But infinity considers this nothing. Infinity is infinity. The biggest thing which we can conceive of and it's not even close to infinity. So that's why... It's not immortality, it's something which is like boundless. As far as we are concerned, it's like boundless. But their lives are boundless. Nothing is infinite. Uh, the, the visible universe itself is not infinite. It's not that the infinite doesn't exist, but nothing of what we see is infinite. They, their lives are boundless. They can take them back, relive them differently, and modify their course. Nothing which happens during their lives is outside their control. Existence for these beings is not a fixed form cast like bronze in the mold of the past and blindly stretching ahead into the mists of the future, like a sausage which is unchangeable. That's what I mean here. From end to end, their existence is a malleable continuum, capable of being reshaped. Like you can choose another sausage if you don't like this one. It, you can always change it, change it in whichever way so that you become younger and exist forever, and whatever other things, or at least boundlessly, if forever is a too strong word. They know nothing of before and after. There is no more before and after. Their lives have not only length, and in fact, what is the width of a life, or a thickness. No, these sausages, these lateral dimensions of time. These beings would view their lives as a unity, coherent, like all the sausages are one. Karmapa said that he saw 10,000 lifetimes and he probably could have expanded to 10 hundred thousands of them and they are all him. They are coherent. They are not just like 10,000 separate movies. They were the belonging to the same Atman. They are belonging to the same consciousness, which is Shiva the dancer. That's ultimately the consciousness, Nataraja. They would view their lives as a unity, coherent and susceptible of being altered. You don't like it, you relive it again and you do it in a different way. 
as a result of the consequences, like if I don't like the consequences, they would change the causes. You can go back and simply do it another way. Like, you know, you have, it's like it's a game. It's like playing a game endlessly. For them, the present will be only a particular alternative. Therefore, they control time. Their power stems from that ability. Just as human beings for ages imprisoned by the limits of the distance they could cover on foot, petty, even given a lifetime or a century, like how much can you walk in a century if you walk every day 40 kilometers? So exactly as human beings limited and yet they have already conquered more space and even flown to other planets, at least with spacecrafts, so these beings have conquered time. For them, men must be no more than limited creatures, crippled, to be regarded much as we regarded those of our ancestors who had been confined to one narrow patch of ground. Who are these gods to so play with reality and therefore with our own lives? Because the sun is playing with your life. The sun of our solar system, if it shuts down, you die. No, it's like it's all dependent on the sun. One flare of electromagnetic energy and everything dies on earth. All the life is wiped out. So what are they then? Is it pure mind? Are they our creators? Are they the deities of mythology? Through evolution, you will be as the gods are. The gods did not appear after us because if you become a god, then it means that the gods come later in time. They are in the same time with us because they fill the whole of creation. They turned back and took over the past as well. So you cannot say even if they start from the future, then the past still belongs to them as well, as I just said before. They are in the same time as us because they fill the whole duration. Our two existences, we and them, are coextensive. We exist, we are limited in 80 years on this planet and whatever, previous life and next life and some like this. It's still small time and theirs is past and future and fifth dimension and sixth dimension is all of it together. But in a very special sense, just like for comforting the limited mind like in the of the humans, like in the description of the Buddhist wheel of Dharma, like there are gods and so on, yes, we can say that the gods came after us. They are born from us. They are our descendants and at the same time far, far older than us. From that point in future where their branch and ours separate, they have invaded the whole of the space and time, all these six dimensions of the universe, of which we occupy a petty little corner. Like we are on a small planet in a small corner of the Milky Way and live 80 years of age. And if we had a thousand lifetimes, we live 80,000 years or 100 or 200,000 years on this planet, which is nothing compared with the whole space time. They were born of us, yet they have been there since our beginning. And there is no difference about any other intelligent species in this universe. Even if there are other planets populated by people, it's the same line of causality. At some point, there appears a form of intelligence which takes over time. The causal worlds, these are the gods are called in scriptures that they occupy the Karana Loka, the causal worlds, which they occupy, could be described as the essence of the universe, something which has nothing to do with space or time anymore. The higher sees the lower, but the lower, like they can see us, of course, but the lower never perceives the higher, and therefore that one is not directly 
knowable, like we only have intuitions and forms of clairvoyance in the far distant future and or in other worlds, other planets, evolved races control their own existence and their destiny is no longer a mere thread stretched from birth to death, but a whole fabric. That's the meaning of web, of tantra. It's a fabric. It's lots of sausages. It's every alternative. The universe is a webbed structure, but a whole fabric, or rather a multidimensional warp or, and woof outlining a space. The gods create a universe by simply by becoming themselves in several versions. Who then imposes what is called dharma or order of the universe on us? Perhaps another self of ourselves, like we as gods in the future, and still further away from the present. What more trustworthy ally could one choose than oneself? Like God is you in the future, and then you are your best ally. That's why God is your best friend, because you are organically united. There's no enmity of any kind. So that the superman of tomorrow might live, the snares of the past must be avoided by the man of yesterday who knows nothing about them. So controlling, like we don't explode the planet with atomic bombs and destroy it completely or something. Then so that the future can exist. They depend on, what, on the mistakes done in the past. Then, in a way, we ourselves are the heirs of millions and billions of men born and dead in the past, who with their bodies and their lives have woven the great tapestry of history. And we are also answerable to billions upon billions of men yet to come. Our actions give them a chance and offer a solution to those who are dead. At the first level of understanding of space and time, this you encounter often in science fiction and some primitive understanding of space and time, seekers still believe in what is called a sort of a law of non-regressive information. A transmitter of information from the future cannot be its own receiver in the past. Otherwise said, that's at least the theory, I disagree with it, otherwise said you can't warn yourself in the past. That would supposedly unleash a series of oscillations in time which will eventually damp each other out to get rid of the disturbance. These are famous theories in space-time speculations. The space-time between the point of origin and the point of arrival would be blurred or severely disturbed along with everything contained in it. That would mean that your counterpart in the future, your future I, like if some of you will become enlightened ten lifetimes from now and then you are a Buddha, an almighty, controlling space and time, and therefore you could turn back to you in this life and give you a message. So it means that your counterpart in the future, which can also mean your divine self, your Atman, which is anywhere divine and perfect in the future, which transcends time, or it could mean one of your future incarnations in which you will have reached a level of deification. So it would seem, according to this theory, that your counterpart in the future can't tell you back in time what you are supposed to do today. Yet, there are gaps, and scraps of information leak through under the forms of revelations, vision, inspiration, creativity, synchronicities, tradition, spiritual teachings, sacred writings that help us to find the right path. Like somebody from the future can describe the path which reaches to the future, and therefore it can 
be. Like some of these traditions, we don't know when Matsyendra went in a trance and learned Hatha Yoga from Shiva. What does that mean? Where does that information come from in Akasha? Is it sent from the future? Is it from the past? How, how does it come that Hatha Yoga has appeared in the 5th, 6th, 7th century and it still works and you do it and you get great benefit from this Hatha Yoga even when it goes on small levels of existence. There exists therefore an enlarged kind of physics which is called metaphysics going beyond just dimensions in a dry way thinking in terms of human existence which takes no account of such limitations. Like all the natural laws, this law of non-regressive information is only relative. Someone who understands it perfectly can work out how to break it. That means that one day you will understand the machinery of space-time. Time is the most patient god of all. From their causal worlds, the gods weave the fabric of space and time ceaselessly. They play with possibilities using the free will and inside. The threshold of their interference is so high that the entire universe is affected and new realities are generated, like new sausages. New alternatives of reality can produce. With all the barriers down, the spirit liberates itself. Like you can be anything from alpha to omega, like Milarepa witness. He said, when I reach this, I could move from the bottom of the universe to the top from paradise to hell, I could experience any existential condition existing in the six lokas, and I could pretty much be, go, or do whatever I wanted. This is what we're talking about. <clears throat> so the spirit being unleashed, then existence is multiplied, it's everything 10,000 lifetimes at the same time, putting an end to compulsion. Like then there is no need to do this or not to do that, because in one life you do it, and in the other life you don't do it. And then there is no need to choose anymore because everything is there. A, putting an end to compulsion, making nonsense of what the moving finger writes. No, like there is no fixed delimitation. Man would cease to be imprisoned in a tunnel linking birth to death. This linear existence up till Anahata, up till the fourth dimension. For a long time, men have wondered about the problem of continuity of existence. Was a man the same on waking up as when he went to sleep the night before? Might not sleep be a complete break and you are another being, actually? Why did certain ideas and memories vanish altogether from consciousness only to turn up again later on? Was there a unity or a mere just a position of existences? Are jumping from a sausage to another or is there a oneness there? Gradually, spiritual seekers grasped the truth. Since his beginnings, man had lived in ignorance of the greater part of himself, his subconscious mind, because the perception of all these things is in the very deep layers of the subconscious mind. That's where you have the memory of previous lives and a lot of other things. In terms of space and time, we're asking ourselves almost the same questions in almost the same terms. Another 10 minutes and we're done. I see that some of you are leaving. It's late. It's true. How are possibilities related to one another? When all the possibilities could be there. What connects the past, present and future of one's existence? Does childhood determine maturity or the other way around? Is childhood determining who you are when you are adult or you are a certain child because you will be in a certain way when you'll be adult? 
we don't yet comprehend our own essential nature, the Atman, the spirit, which is in all these. But we have to live with what we do know and keep searching. The causal worlds have additional dimensions in the space-time structure of the universe, which implies that they are everywhere. The surface of a hyper-volume is that very volume with one dimension less. Five di four dimensions cut, the surface of it is just three dimensions. Five dimensions, four dimensions. Six dimensions, five dimensions. It's always one less, one dimension less. In the end, all this is not about time travel. Time travel is almost incidental or anecdotal because we speak about an expansion laterally. What matters is to get used to the idea of living in a new way, the way gods do, like simultaneously, like Karmapa did. Some thinkers have coined the name hyperlife for it. When you live all the sausages or many of them, you are not alive. You are not living a life. You are living a hyper life. You are living a complex, a, a, a conglomerate of lives. That means to live in several possibilities at once, maybe in all the possibilities, to coexist with yourself on many probability lines, to be several people at once, yet remain your unique self. Because if not, you are schizophrenic, you are damaged goods. So to be, it's, there's a oneness. First, the spirit. The spirit is the unifying factor. To be multidimensional, we may think what it will mean when every such being can introduce its own changes in history. Like every Tom, Dick, and Harry that is at that level can modify the sausages. And then another one, and another one, it's like constant. And incredible. The changes will combine with each other. They will set up interference patterns, like ripples met meeting on a pond. And some will be favorable, and some will be harmful. No human mind can attain hyperlife and still be sane. Everyone is part of another's possibility. You remember, there is, I always tell to people, I call the attention to this old man who is interviewed in a documentary called The Yogis of Tibet. And after he refuses several times, then he speaks very ironically and dismissively, but accepts to speak. And he's known that he spent 40 years alone in a cave, and he is one of the greatest meditators existing at the time when the documentary was made. And he says, what can I tell you? He says, if you want to see, go and spend 40 years in a cave and see for yourself. He says, you are looking at me with that camera, and to you, I'm just another dude. I'm a human being. But he says, from where I sit, it's long, long time that I'm not a human being anymore. Basically, he says, I live in a human body. I'm not a human being. My consciousness is something else. No, I don't belong here, really, and all that. Uh, there's a long story with him. So, everyone is part of another's possibility. You'd have to know someone incredibly well before risking a change in his destiny and your own. No concept of our human life even comes close. That is why the gods are no longer human or reptilian or dove-like or descendants of any species we can dream of. They are all of them at once, or rather, they once have been. Therefore, no one dies. A life is like a page in a book. There's another next to it, not only after it, that's the idea of reincarnation, but also next to it, like a parallel one. Beyond life, there is a hyper-life like multiple parallel possibilities. A hypercube, a tesseract, that's the word there, 
A tesseract contains an infinite number of cubes, yet its volume is finite in four dimensions. The lives of the gods are not infinite, but they are boundless, as said above, like a tesseract. They can contain so many alternatives of the time. Learning to control time, one becomes like them. Death holds no terrors for those who have caught a glimpse of hyperlife. To die once is no great matter if myriads of other parallel existences still remain to you. But we can then conceive of something we would call hyper-death that consists in being relegated to mere potential, in being eliminated from all the probability lines by some radical event that we could call like a time quake, like an earthquake in time, an accident. To be sure of escaping that, one must control every creode, every timeline, like really to be in control in the universe. One must make one's own possibilities congruent with those of the continuum. The gods are precisely those that have succeeded in doing so. So there are at least three levels of existence. The level of potential, the hyper-death, where one has no more than an entry in the phantom records of the causal world, like there was a possibility called Walter, after hyper-death. The level of linear life, the level of the normal mortals, like that of the average man, where one, has, one was held prisoner by time from birth to death. And finally, the level of hyper-life, which may symbolically be mapped along dimensions which are perpendicular to the single time axis, like sideways, sausages, sideways, and not from birth to death, not from past to future, and where one was somewhat liberated from time. Time is a tyranny. Advanced spiritual adepts, at some point, reach to the threshold of hyper-life. By failing this test, they could fall back to the level of a linear existence. Like if you are not prepared, you have to wait a little bit more to pass some more tests. Making an analogy to quantum mechanics, this would be like emitting the counterpart of a neutrino, and then I don't, some of you understand this analogy, and then their spiritual practice of the past years or lives would become potential and cease to have active consequences for the time being. It would not vanish completely because it's preserved somewhere, but it would have negligible reality in that particular moment without mass and charge like a neutrino. Someone in the world of the gods would observe the equivalent of a shower of sparks in atomic reaction. Think there are dark rooms where par elementary particles are seen as sparks. A spectral cloud chamber would record the failed transition. So we humans are ripples on the surface of a multidimensional reality to be reshaped and dispersed by a puff of wind according to the whim of the gods. Like we don't have control right now over this continuum. Most people don't. Maybe that old man from that documentary. We are only toys for the gods, the puppeteers who are making over universal history. And now the concluding paragraph which takes us back to oneness. Ultimately, we are the gods, but because the gods are us. They are occupying all the possibilities, including ours. But we don't know that we are. We have to discover and grasp that truth. They are the sum of everything that's possible for their kind, for ours, for all ours, even for species you cannot dream of and that could not dream of you. They are all the fragments of the universe and all the perceptions of the universe. We are not the ancestors of the gods. 
nor are they our descendants in materialistic terminology. But we are spiritually one part of them, cut off from our origins and also from our completion. Each of us is one of their own early possibilities of the gods, a detail, a timeline, aspiring in our muddled way to achieve union with them, yet struggling blindly in the dark to assert our selfish separate existence. Something has happened somewhere in space and time which we ourselves don't understand, though we know it was neither at the beginning nor the end of time. There is no before or after. To the gods, and already to a tiny extent to some very evolved yogis, time is a dimension along which events coexist, like objects laid side by side. We are one moment of the long path that leads to causal existence, towards the union of all possible consciousness, and the gods are each and every one of the beings who have ever taken and will ever take the path. But uh, why gods in the plural? There is a point at which the gods are revealed, just as all possible variants of one, of a one, of a single one, like I said before with being one and the same. And might not that one have grown bored and chosen to scatter himself knowingly into oblivion, like Shiva creates oblivion, becoming each man and all man, each being and all beings, rock and worm and star and wave and space and time. Is this a dream or a remembrance?